Well, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5 this morning. Um, It's one of those days where I think the best way um, to begin is to just uh, read our text together. We'll lay a little big picture foundation after that and then um, break it down. But why don't you stand with me out of reverence respect for the Word of God. Let's read um, 1 Samuel chapter 5. I think we got it. There we go. 1 Samuel chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Uh, It says, When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Verse 4, But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us. And against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. Verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. You may be seated. So we are considering the Ark in Philista this morning. And if you remember the last couple of weeks, um, the, the nation of Israel tried to deploy the Ark of God like some sort of magic talisman or instrument of power that would guarantee them victory in battle. Um, and it just doesn't work that way. Uh, the truth of the matter is that at this point in time, the nation of Israel sees the Ark as much of an idol as the Philistines see Dagon, that statue in the temple that we just read about. Um, Both peoples have established temples with a priesthood and various religious observances. And so honestly, we we can't really blame the Philistines for making some false assumptions here about the ark. Um, They're seeing Israel act in a way uh, that is very, very familiar to them. And, And so they're doing what most cultures at their time would have done. It was kind of understood that when a people um, was, were defeated in battle, um, their gods were captured or completely conquered, and they were ob- typically paraded around in some sort of display, and that's what they're doing here. That, I, I think, is the atmosphere um, we're to consider as we read this text. The Philistines believe, because they won the battle that day and they've captured the ark, that now Dagon is superior to Jehovah God and Israel's God. That's the way they're looking at things. Now, God, of course, is not going to allow that misunderstanding to flourish too long. 
Um, and he's certainly demonstrating his power to the Israelites in this text, but he's also making himself known um, to other nations and idolaters and certainly the Philistines. And we need to understand that kind of hovering over the backstory here um, is the truth that God could have um, destroyed the Philistines at any point in time. Um, he certainly has the power to do that. He is supreme. Um, he is the creator of the heavens and the universe. We will see that as we go along. And so any delay of his power here is really grace. Over the next two chapters, we're going to see the, the phrase, hand of the Lord seven times. Um, God's hand is all-powerful. It's heavy in this text is the phrase that's used. And it's just a reminder again that he is the one true God. Uh, the ark may be in Philistine hands, but God is still in control. And so remind, remember that as we move along. But the ark is in Philistia. Uh, now we break it down. We start with the ark in Ashdod, verse 1. And uh, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Uh, most historians believe that Ashdod was kind of the chief city of the Philistine Pentapolis. Um, you may remember we mentioned that they had kind of a five, um, five kings, five ruling cities named after those kings. That was kind of the core structure of their growing empire. Um, it started with Ashdod, and then there was Gaza, or Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Okay? Um, Ashdod is the coastal city um, of this empire. It's about 35 miles west of Jerusalem. It's likely selected to be the first host of the ark um, because they're parading it around like some um, talisman of their victory, I think, proving that God is conquered, so to speak. It's their primary city, but also um, it's the home of the temple of, um, of Dagon. And that's what we see in verse 2. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now they're wanting to show Jehovah God's subservience to their God, Dagon. Um, Dagon was their national deity. Um, his temple obviously rests in Ashdod. So that's why they bring the Ark there to really honor their deity. Again, they're assuming that because they have beat the Israelites in battle, that their God is superior to the Israelites' God. And just two weeks ago in our text, we saw that uh, they had initially been fearful of Jehovah God. Um, they had some misunderstandings, certainly, but um, when the ark of God rolled out to the battlefield and the Israelites rejoiced and made a loud noise, there was panic amongst the Philistines. They said, Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And that word plague is kind of akin to the word tumors, which we'll see a bit in the text. Take courage, be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines had kind of regrouped and they had gone to battle, um, but they had been fearful of Jehovah. Now they think Jehovah is a, a powerless God who's been defeated before Dagon. Now, if you know your biblical history, you know that when it comes to the handling of the Ark of God, um, Israel had been given some very specific instructions. There are multiple incidents um, in Israel's history when they didn't follow those instructions very well, and there were literally um, people struck dead because of the mishandling of the Ark. Um, we're going to see that later in David's reign. Um, eventually, when the Ark of God is restored to, well, not restored, but moved to Jerusalem um, in 2 Samuel 6, there's an elaborate ritual that's followed and all of that occurs. So with that in mind, we have to state the obvious at this point. God is showing the Philistines mercy and grace in that he hasn't judged them and struck them dead at this point. 
They're parading the ark of God around as if God is subservient to Dagon and the ark is some sort of, you know, again, magic talisman. But they're parading it around like a victory parade. And I would argue that God at any point in time could have judged them. Um, and he's holding off in its grace. But that's about to change. Um, so we see first here, we see Dagon down. <clears throat> Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground um, before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Dagon is kind of God's first target, you might say, in this text. History is somewhat murky uh, about what the statue of Dagon um, actually looked like. Uh, we don't have any, you know, statues buried in the ground. We certainly don't have any pictures, you know, from this period. But um, most... Uh, historians would say it was some combination of a fish and a man, you know, probably like a Florida gator and Houston nut, something like that. Anyway, sorry. Just making sure you're out there. Anyway, sorry, that's a sports reference just to skip it. Um, anyway, we're not sure. Um, some kind of fish-man combo some, some way. Uh, worship of Dagon is historically recorded um, in the early Bronze Age throughout this region or what you might call the Fertile Crescent um, kind of Mesopotamia, Canaan, northern Syria. Um, Dagon was reputed to be kind of an agricultural storm uh, sea god, um, reputed to be the, the father of Baal as well. Now, again, understand, when I'm referring to Dagon as a god, it's little g, God. There is one true God, and that's part of what, why this text is given to us, I believe, to demonstrate that. Um, but that's who they consider Dagon to be. He had become the Philistines' national deity. And, and understand, it kind of tells you something about their culture. Dagon had, had not been known to the Philistines until they invaded this region. And as they moved into this region, he was one of the Canaanite gods that they conquered, so to speak. And then they sort of co-opted him as their god. Um, they felt like he belonged to this region, and since they were in control, he was now their god. And that in itself, I think, should kind of show us the, the futility of worshiping gods that you can sort of pick and choose, um, but also can be conquered or, or moved around like a statue. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, let me be honest, there's a lot of silliness to this in the sense that they were assuming that, uh, like a lot of people today, they will mock Christianity for worshiping a god that we cannot see, um, but is that any more foolish than worshiping a god that you made with your own hands? Um, that seems to be one of the things this text is highlighting. But regardless, um, they had Dagon, and they had a statue of Dagon, and, and they put him in their temple, and, and they're going to get a lesson here that he is nothing more than a statue because they find him in a position of subservience to Jehovah God. He's fallen down, face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now, I, I don't know um, what they attributed this to. Maybe there was an earthquake or who knows what it was. But for whatever reason, they just picked their little statue up and put him back in his place, and they move on. Nothing learned. Um, they put him back in his place. Soon enough, though, they're going to concern themselves with putting the Ark of God back in its rightful place. Um, we know that's where we're headed to, but we're not there yet. We press on. Dagon's down. And then we've seen Dagon dissected. Um, when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon uh, do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Now, there's a lot going on here, I believe. Um, 
quite obviously, the Philistines are getting a clear picture of God's superiority over Dagon. Um, but the threads of that truth, they, they run pretty deep. Um, in this region, and certainly among the Philistines, we know this. Um, it was true then. It's still true today. Um, the, they used to collect um, either heads or hands um, after a battle to establish a body count, but also to display trophies of that battle. And so the beheading and the behanding, I don't know if that's a word or not, but that's what happens here, um, of Dagon is not an accident. Um, the Philistines were accustomed, again, to taking those battle trophies. And so I don't think they missed the reference in this text when they find Dagon with his head cut off and his hands cut off. Um, you can go all the way back to Judges chapter 8 when... Um, Gideon's army was involved in a conflict in this region. Um, the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna, uh, those were two kings they were fighting, are they already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? What they're really saying is, when, when you've cut off their hands and you can display them to us as trophies, we'll believe you're in control. Um, that was kind of the way uh, these peoples thought. And certainly the Philistines were kind of um, the primary practicers of this. Later on, um, years later, when King Saul is defeated in battle by the Philistines, you may be familiar with what the Philistines do to him in First Chronicles 10.10. They put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Uh, this temple we're reading about right here. They beheaded him and, and put him up as a trophy um, in their temple. First um, Samuel 29, you may remember, and we'll eventually get to it again, when David was in hiding um, from King Saul's wrath, and he was hiding among the Philistines. And they had this conversation. They said, send David back that he may return to his place to which you've assigned him. Uh, the Philistines and the Israelites were going to meet in battle, and they said, He shall not go down with us in battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? If David wanted to get back in good with King Saul, he'd behead us all and carry our heads off as trophies. That's the way the Philistines thought. Um, and so we shouldn't be surprised in our day and age when Hamas... Uh, carries out a terrorist attack in Israel that they were beheading women and babies because this is something that culturally they've done for many, many generations and it shows their superiority over the people they're conquering. Um, there's a good chance that there's some foreshadowing here um, of another uh, biblical event we should be familiar with as well. Um, if you flash forward to 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him. And what did he do? He cut off his head. Um, why? Because, again, that's the language that these people spoke. And so David was dis displaying um, the champion of the Philistines' head to them um, to prove that he had won the battle. Now, enough of all that. Back to Dagon. I hope you can see here that he is but a statue. Um, regardless of what he looks like, he's headless, he's handless, he's powerless before God. He cannot speak, he cannot move, he cannot think. And that's before he lost his head in his hands. Do you want to worship a statue fashioned by the hands of men which can be humiliated like this? Or do you want to worship the creator of the heavens and the earth? We all have a choice to make. And understand, there are, there are many religious systems out in the world, and, and there are many of them that are worshiping statues and idols fashioned by hands. And, and the reality is, in all those religious systems, there's something that man has to do in some way to appease or to placate this statue. We're, Christianity is the only religion in which God came to us. God stooped 
to make himself known to us. God sacrificed himself to pay a price for us. The creator, almighty maker of the heavens and the earth, is giving us a picture in this text that he is real and that Dagon is but an idol. And, and yeah, the Philistines are getting a front row seat for that, but I hope we're paying attention as well because it's just as true today as it was then. Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. This is what you're worshiping when you're worshiping an idol. And I hope you can see a picture of the gospel here as well because God is certainly declaring his supremacy, his majesty, um, even though it's, it's but a flicker of his power. Um, Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Uh, Romans 1, kind of a longer passage, says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Again, it, God is not a statue that you can hold in your hands, but he made everything that we see. He gives us life. He gives us breath. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But see, then when you start thinking about the reality of the gospel, Jesus Christ the very Son of God, God Himself, took on flesh, dwelt among us. Uh, people say, well, you know, at, at least I know where my God is. I hope you understand that we have seen our God um, in eyewitness testimony that Jesus Christ came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived... Uh, 30 plus years, a, a perfect life. He died an atoning death. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. He was resurrected. He appeared to thousands. We have a written testimony that our God is not a statue sitting on a shelf, but he is altogether a man in a sense. In that moment, he became a man so that we might see him, know him, have a written testimony of what he did and what he said. We have an evidence beyond all evidence that God is real and that he loves us and that he cares for us, and he died to atone for us. Um, Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the one true God. This is the God we worship, and this is the God who I, I hope you're seeing the grace that he's displaying here in, in this text. He is supreme. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's actually drawn the Philistines to this region to be used as a tool of judgment to discipline Israel because they've wandered into idolatry. Okay, And yet he's not judging the Philistines at this moment in time as their wickedness truly deserves. 
they were idolaters. They were uh, the kind of uh, men who beheaded um, women and children and all those things, and, and they were wicked in so many ways, and yet he allows them in this moment in time to capture the ark, to take it into the temple of Dagon and, and Ashdod. He warns them first by um, allowing them to find Dagon lying prostrate before the ark. Then he takes it a step further, severing Dagon's head and hands. But God has not yet rained down physical judgment on these Philistines and friends I'm telling you this is grace because they were wicked idolaters and yet God is slowly but steadily revealing his majesty to them and here's the reality this is the same way that he works with you and he works with me because whether we want to admit it or not we're all wicked idolaters at heart we're we're sinners in need of a savior and we have all sin and fall short of the glory of God and so if you're here this morning you should not be asking that God would give you what you deserve because none of us want what we deserve. The Philistines didn't want what they deserved. You and I should not want what we deserve. Because the reality is we're sinners. We're, we're, we're born into rebellion. We turn against God and we deserve judgment. And the wages of sin is death. But our God, unlike any other God, does not demand our worship. He does not uh, need us to, to do things back for him. In fact, he died in our place. He came to make atonement for us. He stooped um, to accept the judgment and, and punishment that we deserve so that we can be reunited with our holy God. God is offering us forgiveness and grace and eternal life through the work of His Son on the cross. Um, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Uh, John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And get this, for God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, even though we deserve that, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So let me ask you, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you accepted this gift of grace that He's offering you? Because here's the reality. We take it for granted. We assume the door to grace is going to always remain open, but we never know when the moment of grace will pass and the judgment that we rightly deserve will fall. And that's what the Philistines are about to experience. Now, the last thing before we move on, and I would argue the reason why we see God continuing down this road um, of discipline and why it intensifies, we see in verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day it's kind of written into the biblical record uh, like a historical footnote almost and I believe it's to show us that the Philistines missed the point the name Dagon is repeated three times in this text it doesn't say anything about God God has humiliated Dagon he's beheaded and behanded Dagon Dagon is but a statue and yet somehow the Philistines decide that they're going to have a, a sense of reverence for this portion of the threshold of their temple where Dagon's hands and heads lie and I believe this is when it's very very clear to everyone involved that God's going to have to go a bit further because the Philistines are missing the point Yahweh has defeated Dagon in his own temple but they're not getting it uh, they, they've just developed a reference for the threshold and not for the ark and certainly not for the God who's in control of the ark so God moves on with his instruction um, next we see the tumors 
The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And again, I, I don't think you're supposed to miss the fact that we just saw Dagon's hands, the statue, lying there on the threshold, and then the very next sentence is, the hand of the Lord was heavy. There is one real God. There is one true God here, and he's displaying his power. And so he begins to move against them. And you move on, it says, And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. God is making it clear. He's mocking, in a sense, Dagon, I believe. He's pointing to his majesty. And now God does to Ashdod, in a sense, what he did uh, to the Egyptians. Again, you may remember that uh, 1 Samuel 4 passage when Israel first brought the ark out to the battlefield and the Philistines kind of panicked. And they said, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague um, in the wilderness. Well, there's a plague that is getting ready to fall on them. And um, it, it shares a, a root in Hebrew for that word tumors that we've seen. Um, if you, uh, depending on your translation, some have a footnote here that um, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as the, the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation, they add a little subscription at this point in the text that um, says something to this effect. And mice multiplied in their land, and the terror of death was throughout the entire city. Now, don't misunderstand. Um, God can supernaturally do what God wants to do. If he wants to send a plague or tumors or bulls or, or death, he can do that. Um, in many cases, though, I do believe he uses, um, in this case, most people would say this is probably the bubonic plague. It was being carried by the mice. Um, that's why the mice are mentioned here. Even though the, though the Hebrew text does not mention that at this point in time, if you flash forward to um, the next chapter when they're starting to figure out how to send the ark back to Israel, um, they mention it. What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered five golden tumors and five golden mice. Okay, so there is some connection here, I think, between the tumors and the mice. It's, it's likely some form of bubonic plague. But understand something. God's in control of it. We're going to see that it's only manifested when he chooses to do so. Uh, it only afflicts who he chooses for it to afflict. He's still in control. Don't minimize this. Don't say, well, there's nothing miraculous about this. It was just a plague. No, it just happens. The plague only breaks out when the ark of God shows up. Okay? God's in control. But he's using something that was familiar to the nations at the time, I believe. And, of course, they probably were not able to deduce that uh, the mice were likely carrying fleas. And um, that was causing the plague to continue to expand. But anyway, um, those in Ashdod figure out something bad's happening, and they don't want the ark there. That's the way they view this. And um, they decide um, that they want to move it on down the, the road. But that's not the universal view, obviously, because there's a discussion that follows. And, we move on, and we'll move pretty quick at this point. Um, we're going to see it in Gath here in a moment. The men of Ashdod are demanding deliverance from the hand of God, so a discussion ensues. We see desperation. Um, so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? I mean, it's killing us. Are we, we're afraid it's going to start killing us. So they call a meeting, the five kings of the Philistines, uh, the five leading men of those five ruling cities apparently are gathered together to debate the next step. We have to assume that they are not convinced that the damage to Dagon and the plague on the city are associated with the ark, though, because of what they do next. If they had believed that, I don't think they would have simply sent the ark somewhere else. But we see a detour next. They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. 
So they brought the Ark of God of Israel there. It's probably a reminder, as we saw in 1 Samuel 4, that these Philistines, they're, they're not easily frightened. <laughs> uh, they're staying at it. They prove that here. Disregarding the evidence before them, they simply decide to relocate the Ark. We don't get any really glimmer as to why Gath is chosen. Um, it's about 20 miles away from Ashdod, um, which is a pretty long ways to take it. Maybe they're trying to separate it from this plague and, and to prove that the plague just happens to be coincidence. It is closer, Gath is, to Israel's border. Um, I, I doubt that has anything to do with it, though. It's worth noting that Goliath is from Gath, but again, that doesn't seem to have any um, bearing on this choice. It is one of the five ruling cities, so I would argue that it, it's a place of significance and it probably still points to them kind of they're holding to this idea that our God has defeated Israel's God. This Ark of the Covenant is a, is a token of our victory and we're going to parade it around to all of our cities to prove our um, superiority. And so they send it on to Gath. Well, anyway, maybe they're just doing this to alleviate the fears of those in Ashdod, but um, next we see discipline. But after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. It's curious to me that it says, and it afflicted the men of the city. Again, there are those who will read this and they'll say, well, God has got nothing to do with this. It was mice and it was tumors and it was the bubonic plague. Well, it's curious that the women aren't getting the plague. Wouldn't you agree? So don't ever minimize the role of, of our God. You've got to understand that all this is being orchestrated by a sovereign God. He's trying to gently, I believe, patiently move the Philistines toward an understanding that he is the creator. He's also reminding Israel, we're studying the text, we should get the same picture. But to this point, there's been no overt mention of deaths yet. But there is panic, and there's a plague among the men of the city. But that's all that's recorded. Again, God is showing them grace. He's slowly revealing his majesty. He's giving the Philistines plenty of warning as to his power. First, Dagon falls, falls over. Then he's beheaded and his hands are severed. Then the plague descends in Ashdod. It says on its people, which would indicate men, women, and children. But there are no deaths recorded there. Then they relocate the ark to Gath. A little reading of the text would indicate that the plague in Gath only impacts the men and the boys of the city. And the people of Gath, well, they don't seem inclined to wait around and see what's next. Um, so the traveling adventures of the ark continues. Um, next we see it in Ekron, and, and it's interesting. Uh, we don't know uh, how this power structure of the Philistines really worked, but this time there was no discussion. Gath wanted to get rid of it, and they sent it to Ekron. Um, and so on the, down the road it goes. Maybe this was a predetermined step. I, I don't know. Um, but it moves to Ekron, which is a city, curiously enough, in conquered Israelite territory. Now it's not just getting closer to Israel, but it's in what used to be Israel. Um, this area is a part of the, the tribal possession of Dan. Um, so we can assume that some of the people we'll read about who are panicked next in the text, they're subjugated Israelites. Okay, um, They've been enslaved by the Philistines. They're living in conquered territory. Um, they're probably having to tithe part of their crops and, and work for the Philistines. And they're very familiar, at least despite their idolatry. They should be familiar with God. They should be familiar with the Ark of God. And so we see their perception when the Ark rolls in. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. 
But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. That phrase cried out, um, same phraseology that we saw in last week's text. If you remember uh, 1 Samuel 4.13, when the messenger came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. It's not a good sound. It's not a celebration. Um, it's a cry of anguish. Uh, there was weeping and there was fear. And, and so this journey of the ark that the Philistines have been um, you, parading it around, now it's accompanied by panic. It's not a victory march. I would call it a parody of a victory march. It's kind of an indication that God is still in control. And even though the text doesn't address it, um, I think we also have to know from a military standpoint, uh, when the Philistines defeated Israel in 1 Samuel 4, it would have made sense for them to follow that victory up with a stronger invasion uh, of the nation. But I don't think they get to do that because they're too busy dealing with the plague in their ruling cities because they've made the mistake of scoffing at God and parading the ark of God around. And so rather than winning battles, they're now dealing with the fallout of their, you might say, embarrassment of God. Anyway, this is God's grace toward Israel at the same time in which he's displaying himself to the Philistines. And the cities of uh, Ekron, or the citizens of Ekron, well, they're not... They're not too happy. They do not see grace here. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. Well, that's a change of tact. Um, again, we don't know how everything worked within the Philistine leadership structure. Um, Ashdod had needed a meeting of the leaders to ship the ark off. Gath apparently had not needed a meeting. But Ekron, now they call a meeting because they don't want to just move the ark somewhere else. They want to send it back to Israel. And so the five kings of the Philistines regather. Um, and the phraseology here, it's curious. It says, send away the ark of God of Israel, that it may not kill us and our people. It's almost the exact same language that Pharaoh and the Egyptians used when they realized, until we get rid of these Israelites, the plague's going to be upon our people. Now send them away. Let them go. Same thing. This is like a reverse exodus almost involving the ark. Um, and so we see panic next. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Get a little insight into the crisis in Ekron. There, there hasn't been an overt mention of death up until this point, but I think that changes. There was a deathly panic. It implies loss of life. Um, it says the hand of God was very heavy there. It would again imply that the plague is now resulting um, in uh, death, uh, numerous deaths. Uh, the leaders of Philistia have been passing the buck, ignoring the possibility that the Israelites' God was displaying his power. I think they're running out of ways to deny that at this point. And so we finish with the power. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Again, clearly some have died, but even those who did not die, they were struck with tumors or boils, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Uh, it seems to be an illusion that some, at least, were crying out to God for mercy. Again, likely those living in the city who were Israelites, who had um, known Jehovah God in their past or in their families. Um, they had forgotten the glory of God, and I don't think there's any doubt about that. That's why this whole judgment had begun. But they're remembering it real quickly under the circumstances as the plague moves in. And so it all kind of begs the question, even that we, we asked last week, where is the 
the glory? Where is the power? Well, the Philistines had felt that the power was in Dagon, and the ark was just some sort of talisman. The Israelites had, had forsaken, given God the glory, and they had thought that the power rested in the ark. Now they're all having to reevaluate what exactly is going on. Is, is God a little better than the statue of Dagon? Is he a talisman that can be moved around, dismembered, or discarded? Well, I think the Philistines are starting to realize maybe he's a bit more powerful than Dagon. Uh, maybe they're starting to realize that even though we defeated Israel in battle, it doesn't mean that we had conquered their God. They were underestimating Jehovah God's power and his holiness. And yet, as you read this and you think about this, I think we have to be honest that we are repeating the same mistakes in our generation. There's plenty of idolatry in our nation. I'm not just talking about uh, churches and temples and, and the, the worship of statues, but I would even argue among Christian circles, there are those who uh, maybe they, they worship the Spirit over uh, the Father and the Son. They, they worship um, uh, the pulpit, the pews, the, the religious talismans. Are we treating God like some sort of statue that we can move around? Uh, do we treat him that way? Isaiah 46, 7, they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it is not answer or saving from his trouble. You, you understand that if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should have an indelible proof that God is real, but here's the reality. You should be convicted of your sin by the Spirit of God at work in your life. You, you should have felt that conviction. You should know when God is trying to prevent you from giving in to the flesh. Uh, there's many things we can talk about that are illustrations that God is real, but the reality is He is not some deaf-mute statue fashioned by the hands of men. He is creator, sustainer. He is almighty God. That Romans 1 passage, we read part of it earlier. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I'm afraid we're drifting the exact same way in our generation. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We too are exchanging our worship for worship of how about human sexuality? How about um, worship of the earth? How about worship of ourselves? See, those are all but idols, and we're trading in um, the worship of Almighty God for those things. We're repeating the exact same mistakes of the Philistines and, and the same mistakes that many, many others over the years have made before us. But we, as believers in Jesus Christ, or certainly as those who got access to the truth of God's Word, we should know better. Colossians 1, 15-20 He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him speaking of our Savior Jesus Christ He is before all things and in Him all things hold together, He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God has made a way for us. 
He sent His Son for us. So that we don't worship a statue lying on the ground. We worship God through the Son. He came and He took on flesh. We have a personal relationship with Him, or at least we have that opportunity. You say, well, where is the power of God? Is it the ark? Is it David? The glory of God is in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's making God known to us. And we can worship Him. It's not in a statue. It's not in the ark. It's not in, in any church. It's in the Son. So as your musicians come, let me share with you Colossians 2 this morning. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. He's made us new. He's rejuvenated us if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The Philistines were getting a glimpse into the power of God in this text. But we have seen it best through the son's defeat of sin on the cross. Never forget the glory of God. He has triumphed over all rulers, principalities, powers, even most importantly over sin and death itself. Do you know him? Do you know the son? And if you know the son, why are you not serving him? Let's stand and let's respond to him today. Mm -hmm.